0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the 31st episode of Baseline Intelligence, the podcast designed to make you a better tennis player and a smarter athlete. I'm your host, Jonathan Stokey. Today's guest is Kelly Jones. Kelly was a top 100 ATB singles player and reached world number one in doubles in 1992. He's a two-time NCAA champion at Pepperdine and has gone on to coach great players such as Marty Fish, James Blake, Sloan Stevens, and Rasheed Ram. On today's episode, we discuss simplifying your strategy at the net, the easiest grip to hit a volley with, and his fundamentals for winning more doubles matches. So sit back, relax, and prepare to become a smarter tennis player. All right, Kelly, welcome to the pod.
1: Thanks, Jonathan. Good to be here. Appreciate it.
0: I've known you for a long time, actually. I think I was with Rajiv one time. Uh, maybe at like a at that time, I guess, would have been a future, like a 10K, and you were coaching him then, and you were with the USTA, but... You're one of these people who's been around forever. You are in a very small club of people who can say they were number one in the world at what they did when you reached the top ranking in doubles. You were also a very accomplished singles player and have gone on to coach many great players, work with USTA, great juniors. Your daughter is a great player. But before we get into everything with doubles and transition, which is on the agenda today, kind of where did your coaching philosophy come from when you went from a player to a coach your ideas, your principles? What is the foundation of your coaching philosophy?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. One i love to answer, but first I want to tell you, I want to thank you for for all the effort and energy you're putting into this podcast because I can tell you firsthand the difference that it's made, not only for my daughter, but for all the students and everybody that I'm recommending to listen to your podcast. Great stuff. You got Jessica to um, Prakash and and so many great so much great stuff in there to learn from i mean it is it's really incredible and i hope you keep i hope you keep it going so thank you for that so just to just to bring you back a little bit for, for my philosophy and how it kind of uh, evolved and my, what my journey was like to get to where I am today and the way that I teach. And and I can tell you that at some point, I, I'll i tell you that I feel like I'm a little bit on an island when it comes to some of the t- my teaching and my philosophy is um, I grew up with very little coaching. So it was based on athletic ability. My technique was terrible, but I got through juniors in college really based on athletic ability. Didn't play nationals till I was 16. I went from no national ranking to seven in the country, and I built on that that sort of that foundation of being an athlete and playing tennis. But I had a lot of issues, even though I didn't know it at the time. So you go from juniors to college. College was sort of the same sort of program. I had a lot of ups and downs, a lot of success, but then there was a lot of turmoil in the sense of I wanted to be a better tennis player, and how was how was I going to make that happen? Because my game was built on coming to net. Basically the kitchen sink as people call it, you know, I'm gonna get in as fast as I can. I'm not gonna to spend too much time at the baseline. But the consequences were after college when I was done was now I'm in the pros and the holes in my game became evident. So how what am I gonna to do to to create a foundation so that I can actually hit more than two ground strokes in a row and figure out through all the the teaching and all the 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 stuff that's out there, how am I going to learn how to really play tennis? And that was the path that I was on. That was the journey that I was on from day one. And I can tell you it's uh, my journey now is basically trying to help players so they don't have to go through the pain of trying to figure it out, trying to figure out the right way to do things. I can tell you a lot about the wrong wrong way to do things. And hopefully, I have a few things that are that are that go in a, a positive direction. But going through the the pro tennis, there were a couple couple things that 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 really stood out. And and mentors of mine were like Ken Rosewall. When I look at Ken and I say, I watched him volley, and I said, this guy is basically standing on the service line, taking these huge swings at volleys, while everyone else is kind of up at net, kind of like moving around a lot, and he's taking huge swings, hardly moving. And I'm thinking. This is way different than what everybody else is teaching, what everybody else is doing. And then as my game evolved, I felt like I became more like he, like he was based on spending X amount of hours moving forward, coming to net and not really listening to maybe too much of the teaching and coaching out there. So I know this is a little bit long winded, but to, the way that it, it it comes to to my philosophy and how I went through is like, well, when you're. In a situation where your mortgage is on the line, you're going to find out if something works or not. And so I went through this process of trying to figure out what works. How am I going to hit two four ends in a row? How's my? How am I going to hit a backhand, one backhand in the court? How am I going to do things so that I can actually make a career out of this? And so I had to figure it out on my own. My journey was based on how am I going to be a better tennis player? A couple of uh, truths. One, when I was number one in the world in doubles, it wasn't that exciting to me. I was most proud of winning two ATP singles titles because that's how far I came from not being able to hit ground strokes, not being able to be a complete tennis player to showing that I could. And that's where this philosophy comes out of is that the the struggles and the lessons that I learned, and that's what I put into, you know, even a Rajiv Ram or when he was younger, Tim Smichek and these guys, helping them kind of try to create some of the, the these ideas that I had and, and things that helped me. I had a similar tennis
0: upbringing. Like that was always my thing. I was playing other sports. And when I picked up a tennis racket, I actually had two hand forehand, but my right hand was on top. So I actually had two backhands. I took the racket straight down, but I was fast. I I remember. Yeah, exactly. It's ugly. Everyone remembers it, but you know, no one corrected it. So I, I went to my first tournament and I could put the ball in play and I could track a ball and I could compete and I won it. And so the, coach at my club was like, cool, you should probably just keep doing that. And so I didn't have a technical base. And as I've grown as a coach and become exposed to more material, the only thing I, I know there are some fundamental truths that you can't really argue with, but the one size fits all technique sometimes gets to me because there's lots of different things out there. And Just listening to you talk about your journey, it seems like you're not necessarily the one size fits all. You have to volley a certain way, or you have to swing a certain way. That there's an athleticism and
1: a freedom that you should allow yourself to have absolutely creativity is a big piece of this and i know that about you and i've thought about you in the past because i felt like we were you were uh sort of almost like a modern day me in a sense of you were at some point you were going to have to figure that stuff out you were going to have to have to figure out how am i technically i'm an athlete uh, i'm a big guy and a, and a really good athlete but a really good athlete and um, stuck in poor technique is not going to be a a great tennis player. So let's get right into, like you said, you
0: were someone who crashed the net. It's something I enjoy, and it's something that I wish my juniors did more. When I'm watching anyone at tournaments, I'm always thinking you could get on in this ball. You can come in more to the net. And a big reason why people don't come in is maybe they don't trust their volleys. They don't feel like they have good technique and they don't want to be up there. So this is probably an area of expertise for you but kind of what are some of your fundamentals for developing better volleys? That
1: that's a what you're experiencing is is really across the board is how do you get players to come into net and 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 have the courage to to move forward it's it's a really it's a really tough one today. I I'm going to tell you a, a quick story that outlines a lot of my philosophy about volleying. Um when I was a college coach I I had a guy that was 69 and uh, and he would never come forward. His volleys were horrible, he, and he would never approach the net. And from the back, basically, he was a pusher, a six nine pusher with a, with a pretty good serve. He was playing playing a match uh, in the first fall that I was a coach. I watched him play. I really wanted to quit coaching at that time because it was just it was torture to watch. Uh, great kid, by the way. But I basically he was down a set and a break, and I said, "Here's what you're going to do. You're going to serve a volley every serve." And you're going to hit every volley cross court, and he looked at me like I had four eyes. He was absolutely petrified, and I said, "That's what you're going to do," and he did it. And he ended up winning the match. And the long story short is, he ended up he ended up actually becoming a, a pretty good volleyer. But if you look at what I said to him, it was very simple about hitting every volley cross court. There's a couple of reasons for that. One is that it's the easier volley to play; it's the higher percentage ball, volley to play, but it's also the most natural volley to play because you're you are you're you're moving across your body and this is what i tell pro players junior players until they master unless until they really become really a very good volleyers it is really hard even for even for great volleyers to go down the line it is a tough volley because when you hit cross court, you're going across your body. When you go down the line, you actually have to you actually have to maneuver the ball a little bit more in, in most most scenarios. So what happens is that there's a lot of different philosophies out there. I've heard you know keep the ball in front of you. I was like, okay, well, what does that mean? That means oh, I gotta hit the ball down the line and I gotta keep in front. It's like there there's a lot of things that I don't like about that, but the one for sure is that is that you have to be a really good volleyer to make that happen. So, what did I do with this kid from college? I I built up his confidence, his his confidence coming forward because he had no choice. He was going cross court. It's like it's like the default, right? When you're when you're playing singles, what's the default? Well, I go cross court and then and then I make decisions to go down the line when it's appropriate, when I'm feeling the point and whatever. So it's a default. The default is cross court because the last thing you want to do is miss the volley. The last thing you want to do is have to hit something that's, uh, that, that's difficult. So when I start with players, if they're not comfortable moving forward, I will get them to hit every volley cross court until they become hey, – look, if the, if the line is wide open, that's fine. Go line. But your default when you come in is to go cross court. You've got angles. You've got depth. You've got drop shots. And to keep it simple. So now you've got a simple formula. So when you come in, there's no decisions, you're not making a decision. So now you're just trying to build confidence in kids. So that that's something that I use today. I've used it since the the day that I stopped playing, because I heard a lot of a lot of other arguments, and they all sound logical. But as a player, this is what I this is what I want to do. I want to have confidence when I move forward.
0: It's so funny because uh, I was just coaching doubles tonight and one of the principles I I told the kids, I said, hey, if you hit to someone's forehand volley, I don't care if it's a girl, a boy, 18, 12, they're going to hit it cross court. So you better move. And that's because it is the easier volley. And you and I would know this because I I would kind of say, if you're playing an elite doubles team, maybe they can volley anywhere. But if you're playing someone who's maybe not as advanced at the net, that volley is going cross court. My question for you would be, you know you're developing those cross court volleys and you're getting confidence but sometimes that might put you out of position so how do you kind of navigate that if you're stretched way wide and you kind of hit a solid cross court is there a timing element to right. that is how do you how do you navigate uh, that
1: again again what 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 i have found in my experience is that you have the default and you play off of the default and then you get into a situation where something like that you usually will make a decision split second to go a different direction Kind of like if, if you have a, a deep ball, a deep forehand or whatever, you'll make the decision based on the information that you're getting from your opponent, uh, where the ball is, where the angle is. So allowing the, the, the player to decide after they've already had this built up of, of what the default is and, and built up of confidence, I see it playing out more naturally. That's tactics, right? The decision of where they're going to go and that gives them
0: confidence and it keeps things very simple. Is there anything, any fundamental technical things that are, that are very simple that you think applies to everybody at the net?
1: Yeah, I do. One of the things that we're talking about is what are the goals? If I'm advising a club player who is not going to practice hitting, hitting volleys, let's say three times a week, if he's not going to practice the things that we're, we're doing, I might not, go as far with the technical process that I would with a junior that I know wants to be a great player or wants to be a top junior player. That's going to be a different scenario. But if we're looking at the scenario of really good players, players that really want to master volleys, then yeah, I do have some very specific things that I like to work on. The the number one thing for me is the volleys have been taught for decades as a linear swing as a linear kind of pop swing. Okay. To me, it's angular. It follows the same rules as a slice forehand, a slice backhand. It's more of an angular swing than it is a, a a linear, a straight movement. And, and, and again, there's no one right way. And there's a, there's a, a lot of different philosophies out there, but for me, I like to consider tennis being played to the side of the body, not in front of the body. So that the swings become, whether it's a forehand backhand or a forehand backhand volley, it becomes more of an angular swing. For instance, like a great friend of mine, uh, Dave Brown from Michigan, he had a great scenario. He said, pretend you have like a a satellite that, that is at your stomach and your swings go around the satellite. So it kind of like, it almost goes in a, in like a half half moon, a half circle. So it becomes an angular motion and when you're st- when you start to do things naturally these things these things will start to happen so when you look at the technique and you say well uh w- what kind of technique for me you've got to understand balance and how balance and and movement work together and if i can get a balance right with a, with a player then certain other things will come come together so the balance is how do i go out if I, now we're talking about a second volley so uh just quickly first difference between a first volley and a second volley is first volley you typically have forward momentum and that's completely different than a second volley which now I've got to be balanced and go one direction or another so in this position of a second volley I've got to be able to my the drills that I use are out with one step you hold that balance and then you push back from the front foot back to the back foot and then you hop back to where you were what this does is it teaches you how to Go out with balance, hold your balance, and then come back. And of course, that doesn't always happen. But you, you, you've got to teach your body and your your mind and your whole this the, the whole thing of how balance is critical in the volley. When you look at old school volleys, or you look at guys that are great volleyers and how balanced they are when they're down low or when they're they're out wide, this is the thing that we're trying to accomplish first because there's so much teaching of. I guess just by the way i would put it is maybe out of balance movement that we've got to learn how to be balanced first. That's the whole it goes back to Ken Rosewall and you looked at him and it's like his balance was so centered so everything was so easy and yet we're teaching something completely different.
0: I'll I'll throw some Instagram videos up cuz I know on a on a podcast especially it's kind of tough to visualize yes, that is. so I'll yeah. I'll do some visuals with you um that I'll, that I'll put on the Instagram as well but That that makes total sense. I mean, the 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 footwork element of a volley. A lot of times, I see people flat-footed. It's stop and start. It's up tall, and then from there, you know, you're getting jammed. You either have to chop down because you're standing up tall, and then they think their volley technique is poor. That's right. But there's there's really nowhere to go from there. So, are there any other good footwork or split stepping
1: drills that you have to help with that? Um, one of the things that you touched on there, which is I think probably the most common, is that players typically overrun the volley. They over they overdo it because their balance is so off. They're so worried about going forward that they start that forward process too soon. And then the balance is all off. If you watch really good volleyers, they make it look easy. They look like they have a lot of time and they look like they're they're typically moving the racket a little bit more than others.
0: I don't know if you feel this as a coach I do now for sure is I, I just stand there. I don't bend my legs. Like I'm on court 10 hours a day. I'm not looking for a ten hour a ten hour workout. And so but I get to more balls. I used to do this with my Duke guys. I would approach the net and I'd take my shoes off. I'd say, I'm just gonna walk up here and I'll bet you can't pass me. Cause I was balanced and I find that people who aren't comfortable up there, like you said, they're rushing it and they're almost guessing. And I, I kind of relate it to you're trying to cover everything and you end up covering nothing. Right. Like you right. you only what you can stick your arm out and touch and you're not even
1: balanced for that. I love that, Jonathan. That's, that's, that's something that I've, I've kind of done that as well is where it's like, it's like you're doing a lot less, you're getting more out of it. It's, it's the, the balance piece of it, whether it's a ground stroke or a volley, the balance piece of it is, is massive. And we're, we're typically, we end up today teaching more because, Like I said, people aren't spending the time up there that we did many years ago. So they end up just, you know, rushing, crashing into the net, crashing into the ball. And there's an easier way to do it. You talked about the split step. I love one in one of your podcasts. You talked about your coach. He he said something about a, a speed bump. And that was that's awesome because I don't teach the split step especially if I'm working with new students, I have to get them out of split stepping because they come to a point where they almost, they stop as they're coming forward. And then they typically will either be off balance or taking one big step. So is a split step important? Yes. Can we call it an adjustment? Can we call it a, a speed bump where you adjust, you slow down and you move? That's what I prefer rather than the split step, because to me it means you're stopping your forward momentum. Split steps happen, especially in the second position but my my buddy did a a test that you'll find interesting he tallied uh the finals of the Australian Open against uh, Nadal and Djokovic he tallied the the advances at net were 80 in the 80s the amount of split steps were less than 10 so so what are we talking about so it's it's there's movement uh, you you also need to be able to move through a split step with actually if you want to be a great volleyer learn how to see the court and move without actually much of a split step at all. You'll see that in, in the pros when they are moving forward and they're basically guessing what's gonna happen or anticipating what's gonna happen. So the, all those things are important, but if you're taught that you have to split, it's gonna be, it's th- there's gonna be some limitations.
0: So how do you teach that? I, I'm with you. Like when I come in, if I watch myself, I'll, every once in a while I'll do a serve and volley video and I watch my feed and I, I come in, I hesitate on my speed bump. And when I'm landing, if the ball went, to the right, my forehand volley, I land naturally left foot, right foot, push and go. Right. And it's just, right. it's just one move. I don't land on both feet at the same time, like, you know, a traditional, you know, slow motion split step. So if someone out there hears that, and they go, cool, that makes sense. I want to be more athletic. I want to flow. How, what are the first steps of learning how to do that?
1: Gosh, I was uh, at, in, in, uh, in, LA and I was working with, uh, one of the pros and, uh, and basically what I what how I do it is I say, OK, what we're going to do is you're going to either hit a uh, a deep approach and you're going to the first two steps are going to be really fast, almost like you're sprinting. And then I want you to I want you to collect yourself and then move to the direction of of where you're going. And what happens is, is that when you pick up speed. Then there's this more of a natural flow to left foot to right foot, or or, or then trying to figure out which direction you're going. Instead of what you'll see players doing is that they they'll start slowing down way before the ball because they have to come to this split step. Uh, Jonathan, I I don't think there's any real easy way to teach somebody the the motion other than like give them some tips. But one of the one of the ways that I really developed on learning how to close learning how to how to how to hit was in college all we did was two on ones up and back overhead volley overhead volley and i learned through that kind of system of how to move how to how to make adjustments so that's what i do also with my players that we do a lot of up and back so that they're learning how to make these own these own th- their own decisions and the thing is when you and I are trying to help somebody with split steps, you're, you can't get inside their eyes and tell them exactly when they need to split step. It's impossible. So I have a problem with trying to tell somebody when they have to split step because it's, in, it's their eyes seeing motion and seeing what's going on, not mine. I don't know if I answered your question.
0: I don't know if you did either, but I just learned like 18 things, so it's it's, it's all good. Um, do you have anything? I've heard different things, and and like I said, each year that goes by, I realize how little I know about anything because I'm learning all these different theories and philosophies and, and facts. And you know, I've heard some people say that you should have an Eastern grip on a forehand volley. You're switching grips between, or you could just switch to either grip, or you can just have a continental. Do you have any any philosophy or, or thoughts on on what kind of grip you should have when you're at the net?
1: I do. I do. Because when I retired, um, I started hearing about, you got to have a continental grip. You got to have a continental grip. And mine was probably halfway between eastern and continental. So I was more, not eastern, but if you look at Nadal's grip on his volley grip, he's like almost probably eastern. But um, I was more towards that area. Continental felt terrible. And so I went to Edberg and And McEnroe, and it was all looking at these grips, and it's like I'm, I'm almost, I'm really the same as these other guys. It's not really what is continental. It's right of continental. I don't know what you what you call that. Do you call that Eastern continental? I don't know, but it's not true continental. And the way that you can tell if your grip is, in my opinion, the the better grip to volley is that if you're holding your racket and someone presses the face, if you feel the pressure in your fingers, you're continental. If you feel the pressure in your palm of your hand, which I believe that's the way we should be volleying in the palm of our hand for a forehand volley, if someone presses the tip of the racket, you should feel the pressure in the palm of the hand, not in the fingers. To me, that's that's the right grip. That's the best grip to play with, and that's how I uh, all of my all of my players play with that grip.
0: I remember I was at a USTA camp, so I used to volley with a semi-western. <clears throat> I had good hands, so like I would do lots of weird things and I could get away with it, but I was 14 and I think they knew that when I'm 18, that's not going to fly. And so they switched me to a continental and I always had trouble with high volleys because your racket is wide open. And it's funny now as a coach, I would say my top knuckle is continental, but my bottom, my heel pad is full Eastern. Yeah. And my forehand, my forehand volley is never, I'm like, why did I not have this 20 years ago? Right. And I was just always like, I would much rather have someone give me a shoelace volley than a high forehand volley because I was wide open. And so I guess mine would be a composite. I'm not full Eastern, but I, I feel like now, like if I had that volley, I would have been like 5% better back in the day, just yeah. having that palm over.
1: It. Yeah. I, I, and um, you know, I, I enjoy hitting the volleys very hard because that you have that solid, basically you're hitting from the palm of your hand instead of hitting with the fingers.
0: Yeah. And I think it reduces chopping too. Like I said, it I mean, does. If my strings are facing wide open, then I've got to swing down to square them up. And so you talked about people saying more linear and like, sure, it makes it a little more, but you, like you said, the, the, the sound of the concussion with the ball, I I've loved that as a coach. Yeah, it's, fun. it's just, it's fun. Useless to be now that I <laughs> don't care where my volleys go. Right. Um, right. So I want to get in before we get some Instagram questions we have a lot of Instagram questions. So I'm going to get to all of them. Wow. Um, but you you were a great doubles player uh, and you do consult with lots of great doubles players, lots of great doubles teams. What are some of the first things that you look at if you have a doubles team that you start working with? Where Where do you start? H- how do you evaluate that?
1: The, the The basics of doubles, serve, first serve percentage and returns. I mean, sometimes it gets overlooked, but if you talk to the best best players like Raj, Rajiv Ram, and they talk about the serve and return being such a huge, such an important piece of the doubles. And even Rajiv would say about what his, about his return is about the percentages about him making the return and, and putting, applying pressure. It's like, okay, how, how well, the, how well is the team together applying these, these simple f- percentages of returns and serves? So let's take the, let's take the, the percentages of serves. Well, Body serves are huge. Back when I was playing, it was sort of evolving into that. I used it a lot because my serve wasn't, wasn't as big as some of the others. So I didn't want to be hitting a lot of second serves. So I used body serve often, and I could back that up with my volleys. And today, I think part of the problem is, is that, especially with players that are maybe not as experienced, is that they're trying to hit big first serves. They're trying to hit aces on first serves, and they end up hitting use uh, second serves too often and they get in trouble. So that's one of the, the the fundamentals of things that you want to look at is how how well are the players using these percentages? Return of serves. So if you've got players that are just ripping returns and not making a lot of returns. That's also a problem. But I would say like, how do you use the court to make more returns? If you've got guys, the formations today are all over the place, which is a lot of fun to watch, but the goal is you've got to make returns. You've got to get the ball in play. So what gives you the most percentage, highest percentage to do that? Sometimes it's two back on both first and second serves. I want to get that ball in play. I don't care if you lob, but whatever, whatever it takes, you've got to you've got to get the ball in play. And I think when you look at the not maybe not the higher le- highest levels, but if you look at the other levels of players that are trying to improve their doubles, that is one fundamental thing that you cannot overlook, is that you're You've got to figure out ways to make returns. I don't care how you do it. You've got to figure it out in college. When you're dealing with, with players that are learning how to play doubles, it's a big deal. Tactically, how are you going to make more returns? You're you're, you look at percentages. How are you going to get that ball back in play? And you've got guys that are moving and doing stuff, but you've got it. You can't win the point unless you get the ball in play uh, As sim- as simple as that is. So, Uh, Some of the other things are, you know, when you're looking at at great doubles teams, what does their energy look like? How do they what is the energy as a team? I mean, it's such a big I I loved listening to your podcast with Rajiv because he talked about how he's changed. He's changed. He's he he was he's such a an easygoing guy. And yet now he's had to change the way that he carries himself on the doubles court. He gets more fired up. He gets he gets himself into a into a, a state of mind that is that is way higher than he would if he played singles. And to me, that's really important. What is the energy like between and the communication like between the players? So, so those are those are the, the simple things when, when you're looking at doubles teams, but they can make a huge difference over long periods of time.
0: I, I want to touch on, you, you started talking earlier about getting that first serve percentage up and you said body serves. And I don't know if you want to elaborate on this, but it bothers me. Rajiv and I, one of our best plays was we would go regular formation. I would serve backhand body. It would start on their left hip. It would move to their right hip. They'd pull a weak return down the line and he would spike an overhead or finish a volley. Yep. And I think when people hear body serve, they think like, oh, you're going to take pace off and like, you're not trying to do anything. But if you work that ball across the body and put the handcuffs on, not only are you increasing your serve percentage, but you can still create a lot of errors and a lot of easy finishing shots without aiming for the corner of the
1: box. Absolutely. What you want to give a guy uh, a perfect rhythm, just just serve it hard right into a strike zone. That's not going to work. So one of the, one of the other things is is also applying strengths and weaknesses your 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 strengths and weaknesses as well as your opponent. So one story I have is um, I, we were playing in Indian Wells uh, and played against a guy who probably had the best inside out backhand return in the game. His name was Nicholas Coulty. Uh, He could put it on a dime every single time, but guess what we did? We went T poach, serve T poach every single time. And we took away his strength. It didn't take very much time for him to get really pissed off and really upset that he wasn't able to, to really put in play his, his strength. We took it away. So, that goes for a lot of other things, especially with servers, you know, which guys, what you got a lefty on the ad side, take away his, take away his, his lefty wide serve. If that's what he likes, most of them do make him hit T he may beat you a couple times, but you're taking away his, his best, his most used shot. And now he's got to think of other things to do. So, you know, these are the kind of things when you look at strengths and weaknesses of, of opponents and what you need to do, you might go into somebody's strength, but then you've got a, you've got a way to counter that strength. So how are you adding these strengths and weaknesses both on your side, but both, but on your op- opponent's side as well? Like for me, a great play was to get hit it on the ad side, hit at a really good sharp kick out wide on the ad side, because it allowed me to get in a little bit tighter, but it also created you know a little bit of time for other things to happen as well. I would use that on big points, but not too often because you can't be too predictable. But again, strengths and weaknesses. So we're going to get
0: right into Instagram questions. Uh, you've touched on some of this stuff right away, but the first person want to know what your best tip or ideas are for reading your opponent uh, when you're at the net. So I'm at the net, you're at the baseline. How can I read you better, anticipate what you're going to do so I can
1: be in position to finish more volleys? It's a good It's a good question. Um I I always look at anticipation as being part technical because people used to talk about Agassi being, you know, you read the ball so early. Yes, he did, but also his technique was so good that it allowed him to, to see balls early and be able to play the way that he did. Um, and I know that for me, it kind of, it kind of had the same, the same thing. So the question is, is that how do I anticipate better? How do I read the ball better? If your technique is, and your movement is at a certain level you'll be able to read the court better i know that that's maybe not the answer that that they wanted but there there is a lot of there's a technical aspect to this the balance we go back to balance you've got to be balanced if you're balanced you can read better you'll be able to see things clearer. but um you've also what is anticipation it's minimizing options so you're minimizing, or you're you're reading. You're saying, "What are the possible options?" Your brains should be looking at it like, "Well, they're going to pass me. They can go line, cross, or lob." So those are three options, and then you 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 take away. I know it's in an, in an instance, but that's what happens: is that you take away the option that you that you think is least likely, and then you're you're able to read the situation a little bit better. Do you think there's any value
0: in just getting reps in and watching doubles and watching balls come back. Do you think that helps you anticipate it all? Or do you think it's purely a athletic technical kind of thing?
1: Oh God. Yes. I mean, we have, we have the ability to see God, with YouTube and with uh tennis channel. We have the, the ability to watch as much tennis as we could possibly watch, watching the opponents that you're going to play like you did at Duke. It's massive. To be able to have that, to have that visual, it's massive. There, the, the reps are gr- good, are great on the court. You have to have that, but to have the mental reps is huge. Every pro player knows that now.
0: You, you've been a coach for a long time. You've been around a lot of great players. This person wanted to know what the most transformative doubles tip you've ever received.
1: Transformative. Um, my goodness, uh, I'll, I'll tell you, it came from one of my doubles partners early on in my career he's serving. I want you to get, get the picture of this. He's serving. And he tells me he's starting he's get, he's getting pissed off at me because I'm not moving. I'm not doing something. So I learned a lesson. His, his tip was the one thing you're not allowed to do is do nothing. You either, you've got three things you're, you're responsible for. You either poach, you either fake or you fake poach. The option is not nothing. And he drove this into me like I, I'll never forget it because he taught me a really good lesson. I loved to poach. I, I loved poaching. I, I, you know, I won two NCAA doubles titles. I knew how to poach. But, but the problem was is that I wasn't active as I could have been. And I wasn't drawing the ball. I wasn't causing confusion. I wasn't, I wasn't the, the off guy. I was not doing anything. I wasn't doing enough. So to answer that, that question is, that was the best advice I ever received, which is three things, fake, poach, or fake and poach. And the, the fourth option is not an option. The fourth one is not an option. You do nothing. Okay. I, I talk about this with my daughter all the time. You, you're, you, do, you cannot do nothing. If you're not the guy with the ball, hitting the ball, you have to do something. Love that. What
0: is one of the most common mistakes that you see? Let's let's say junior, college, amateur. What are some? What's the biggest mistake you see doubles players making, and how can we correct that?
1: Biggest mistake? Um, well,
0: aside from the fact that you said we watch people do nothing all the time, maybe we can say, <laughs> maybe, maybe, right. maybe we can say the second biggest mistake.
1: I would say what we what we touched on earlier, which is, um, you know, when you talk about percentages, it's about it, you you look you look, you listen to these kids talk and and even really good good players that maybe in college and and they're trying to hit aces in doubles they're trying to hit massive serves and you know what it can work out early and early on in the match but typically it comes back to haunt you later and it usually does so that to me is one of the biggest mistakes players in college and in, um, in junior tennis make is that they're trying to go for too much on the return of serve as well. They're threading the needle, they're taking ridiculous risks and, and sometimes early on it, it works out, but most of the time in the end, it fails. What's your best advice for the four o doubles player? Um, I think one of the, the, the most, it's the non-sexiest shot in the game is to use the lob more often. Use the lob more often. It's just I don't know what's happened in our game, but um, it seems like these guys, you know, where where skills skill set is somewhat limited. You know, you've got guys that 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 are just poaching and moving. It's like what what happened to the lob? And um, to me, that's the one the one thing, even in pro tennis, that I just feel like is not being utilized enough: offensive lob, or defensive lob, or chip lob. So, four O player, it's just so. Not sexy. I'd much rather hit a winner or hit do something special, but hit the lob, move forward. The other thing with four O is that some some sometimes it's okay to stay back. I mean, I see i I do a a, a clinic with uh, with eight probably four O players, and I feel like they're trying to rush and crush a little bit too much. I feel like hey, there's no reason why you you can't stay back and then figure out maybe a better opportunity to move forward, lob over the guy at the net and move forward. I just feel like it doesn't have to be a a standard. I have to get in as soon as possible. I see, I I feel like that's a a big mistake. I had a horrific
0: forehand return and it got better in college because people just served 100% there as they should have. But I used to sit actually with my backhand grip and I would lace these inside out backhand returns and then if someone served to my forehand, I would just chip a lob line. And my my thinking was, number one, like you said, you got to make more returns so I could make that. But I thought to myself, if I can just learn how to put it three-quarter court in the back of the court, so say you know six, seven feet from the baseline, they're not finishing that overhead. And like you said, I don't see that. I, I thought maybe I'm crazy. I mean, I don't see it at the pro level. I certainly don't see it at the amateur 4-0 level. But that is something I remember we played UNC. And we won the match. And afterwards, Sam Paul, he he said he watched the video the next day, and he said you lobbed us thirty eight times in a person. And I was trying to do the math of like how many lobs right. that was a point. And I was serving, volleying some, and I'm like, man, right. I must have done that a lot. He's like, yeah, you killed us with it. Yeah, you're 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 spot on, man. And people need to use that more.
1: I agree, I agree.
0: Uh, okay, I have a couple. Just so you don't think this is too easy, a couple of your former students uh, follow me. Last one, tough one. Who was your favorite student? Oh, God. And I'm not editing this out.
1: Oh, my God. Uh, my favorite student. Um, wow. Uh, Can't
0: wait to see how many people you're going to fend with this one.
1: Well, I'm only going to consider students um, ones that, uh, you know, I I, I sort of helped develop. And I'd have to go. Oh, my God, This this is torture. I'd probably have to go with Raj.
0: So your daughter just doesn't
1: make the cut? that that's tough. I'm totally messing with you, by the way. It it,
0: it was Rajiv. I'll give you that. But I was like, man, is he going to say his daughter? That'd be, that'd be a great uh, answer. Yeah.
1: No, Rajiv. Yeah. He was uh, talking about somebody that wants to learn and get better and uh, so respectful. And and I had so many students like that. I mean, but Raj, Raj really stood out because of his personality, his demeanor um, was just exceptional.
0: Kelly. That was great. And you know, we just scratched the surface. I know you've got a lot of other ideas and so hopefully we'll have you on either later in the year or next year, you're a, a wealth of knowledge, but wow, hopefully everyone listen, listening, uh, maybe have some better ideas for how they can be at the net and, and something to take to their coach at home and, uh, and maybe some doubles tips as well. So thanks so much.
1: Thanks a lot, Jonathan. Appreciate it.
0: All right. I want to thank Kelly for coming on the show today. We got very deep into detail on the net game and improving your volleys, but it's such an untapped part of most amateurs games and that can really separate you from your peers. The last two weeks I've been working with a few of my students about making the default volley a cross court target and it has worked wonders. We've also warmed up with the balance drill he spoke about and I'll be sharing that video on Instagram, but doing that in the beginning with my players has also made a huge difference in the last few lessons. So I encourage you to make your default volley target cross court and see if your confidence improves at the net. I want to thank you all for listening. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there and I'm grateful you chose to join me today. I'm motivated to evolve and improve. So please subscribe if you enjoyed the episode and leave a comment or review. So we keep getting better every week. For more, check out my Instagram at Stokey Tennis for clips from these podcasts, as well as general drills and tips to help your tennis game. Thanks for listening.
1: I hope you just improved at tennis without even hitting a ball.